0: Welcome to the Grace City Eugene podcast. We exist to help every person in our sphere of influence encounter Christ, experience biblical community, and extend God's kingdom. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to hello at com. Here's the podcast. Well, as uh, Casey said, my name's Chris. It's good to be with you all today. Whether you're in the room here or you're on the other end of this camera, it's glad to have you with us, and I pray that the word that uh, God has given me today encourages you and helps you to take your next step in following Jesus. That's always the goal here. Um, we are in week number seven of our Make Room series, looking at the book of Mark. And you guys, we're in chapter two today. <laughs> Six weeks in chapter one. We're going to be getting into chapter two today. And uh, But before we do that, just a quick little reminder, refresher of, of what we hit up on last week. So last week, we talked about Jesus's compassion and God's mercy and power, if you recall. Now, there's much more to it than that. I'd urge you to go check out the sermon online if you haven't yet. Um, But as we closed, this was kind of the closing statement, just to to catch us up to where we're starting out today. It said, moved with compassion, Jesus touched and cleansed a leper who lived on the fringes of society. And we need to recognize that Jesus made room to deal with our mess and the messiness of this world, and we are called to make room to address messy situations in order to see redemption in others. So that was where we ended last week, where we finished chapter 1, and today we start right off in chapter 2 of Mark, uh, verses 1 through 12, and we're going to be diving into the story of Jesus healing the paralytic. This is a story that if you've been around church or any sort of youth groups or anything, like this story has likely come up in some Point. It is familiar to many, uh, but there's a lot of lessons in this story that oftentimes just get kind of breezed over. They, they don't, um, we don't often take the time to dig into what is going on at a deeper level here. And so uh, we're going to do that today. Now, with any message as we're going through this book, there's so much going on. I am never going to claim to touch on every single thing that could be touched on in these 12, 13 verses today. But what I am going to say is I believe God has breathed this message for us, and please go read it yourself and see what else he might show you through your time looking at it. But without being too much of a spoiler alert, I do want to give you the title of this sermon so that you can be listening through this lens today. We're going to be talking about making room for forgiveness. Making room for forgiveness. But wait, pastor, this is a sermon about the healing of a leper. Exactly. We're going to talk about making room for forgiveness today. So keep that in your mind, and let's read God's Word together. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2, as I mentioned. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the Word to them. Some men came, bringing To him, a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the man or the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins? And walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this before. Praise God, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for just the stories that it represents. I thank you for the truth that it teaches us and for what it means for us in our lives today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you uh, would be unpacking this along with us today, that you would be helping our hearts and our minds to be open to receiving your word. I pray that these words would be from you, not me, and ultimately, Father, help us to know more of who you are through our time in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Good job, kids. Man, it's fun having you guys in here with us. Um. So there, there's a lot going on here, so we're going to run through. There's a few things that are worth unpacking, as, as there is each week, so that we can fully understand the context and what's going on, and then I believe there's a couple particular things that we're going to, we need to dive into. But first off, it starts off saying that Jesus had been away for several days. He'd been away from Capernaum while traveling throughout Galilee, so the last few weeks as we've been reading, he's been traveling for ministry, and now he returns to this town that has served as his home base of sorts uh, in the northern part of the country. And while Jesus's popularity, as we finished off with last week, had prevented him from openly entering many towns because his, his popularity, people were flocking to him, it prevented that. In, the, in this situation, he is able to slip back into Capernaum uh, on this occasion. But that doesn't mean that people didn't hear he was there, right? Um, now, we we read about this home and he's he's preaching and there's not room in the home, there's not room outside of the home, and then we read about and then these people, they just busted down through the roof and let, let this guy down. And I don't know about you guys, but without a little bit of understanding of what homes were like back then, that's kind of a hard one to understand, right? Like I'm a pretty strong dude, and to get on my roof and bust it open to let somebody down in there like that would be a challenge. I, I don't think they had chainsaws, okay? I don't think they had, you know, things that we might use to bust through what we know of as a roof. So so I want to I kind of help you understand what a home may have looked like so we can picture what was happening here. Similar to last week, to help us imagine or picture what Jesus' compassion looked like, it helped us to see what that interaction may have looked like. Similarly, first of all, these homes were made out of stone, wood, beams, mud that was kind of hardened and formed into walls or roofs and, and thatched like grass and leaves on the roofs, right? So... They weren't pitched. They didn't have an attic with insulation and all this. These homes would have had flat roofs. These homes would have had wood beams that gave them structure and then either like pressed hardened mud or, like I said, thatched grass and leaves um, on the top of them. Now, these roofs were used for many things. It wasn't like today. It's like, oh, yeah, that keeps the weather out. And in Oregon, praise God, it keeps all the rain out for, you know, like seven twelfths of the year. Um, It wasn't just for that. I know that's an odd fraction, right, Doc? Just trying to keep it fresh. So they would use this for storage. They may have stored food or other things up there. On a hot night where it was too sweltery in their one-room, small home with multiple people living it, they may have even slept up there to get fresh air. They didn't have yards and things. They couldn't go out in their backyard and hang out. So their roof often functioned for many different purposes. It would not be uncommon to have somebody on the roof of one of these houses. Now, because of this, there would either be a ladder or maybe stairs up the side or the back of one of these homes... So when I first read this, for the first time when I was 15 years old or had it read to me, I'm like, how did they get on the roof? Were these dudes carrying a ladder too? Like, how how does that work? Because our concept of what a house looks like and how this would play out makes this a little challenging. But all of that stuff would have been there. They would have had access to get up to the roof. The, The materials used would have allowed them. It doesn't mean it was kind of them or that the people underneath wouldn't have been getting showered in mud and wondering why their house is being broken up. But nevertheless, this is a very like, possible thing to happen, and it's, it wouldn't have been uncommon to have roof access and to see somebody up there operating. So these homes, it also wasn't like big streets like we have. If you could imagine like maybe this back walkway that has the, the hard floor on it, like maybe that much room going around between houses, in some places even less, maybe more of an alley. Uh, last February when I went to Israel, we went through Capernaum, the foundations of these homes where this was happening was, was still there. And need, needless to say, the, um, the Jewish people of this time did not look like me. They looked more like maybe one of my daughters in size and stature. And so for me walking through that village, I'm like, how on earth did this work? How did they, how did they make it through this place? You know, there's some places where between houses, it's like this size. And so to imagine it just being overflowing with people, imagine sitting at the front door of this rock house with like thatched leaves and mud on top. There's people on the roofs across the street or the alley from you all around every corner just trying to get a vantage point. Just trying to get a vantage point. This wasn't like what we imagine as streets. There would have been people cramped in every crevice, alley, roof, looking out every window and door, cramming into the person's house across the street just to get a view of this miracle worker, this teacher, this rabbi, in what he was doing. So that's the stage for this story that is being set. <clears throat> and then he comes in and he says, "'Your sins are forgiven.'" Your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if, if I'm like carrying my buddy because I heard about this miracle worker who heals people, and we take however much time to carry him there, we get him up the roof, we bust open this roof, roof, and we drop him down, and we're like, yes, okay, we're good. He's going to walk out of this place. And, and the, the guy says, hey, your sins are forgiven. Immediately, I, don't, I would be a little disappointed. I'd be like, hold up. I brought, you, I brought him here so you would heal him. Like, you're supposed to make him walk. I heard about that leper. I heard about that guy. And now you just, like, tell him, oh, your sins are forgiven. Because for them, the religious leaders through the sacrifice system could have proclaimed him to be forgiven. Oftentimes, what would happen is there would be a priest who would walk somebody through all the sacrifices that we read about in Leviticus. If you're going in our reading plan, you've been going through that with us. And you, you go through all that to have forgiveness of sins, and then a prophet would often declare, yes, God has forgiven your sins. So there's this cooperation between the priest and the prophet that was available outside of Jesus, the miracle worker. So if I'm bringing Rod, and I'm hauling him all the way in there, and I lower him down, and I finally get this done, and he's like, hey, Rod, your sins are forgiven, I'm like, come on, man. I brought him here to get healed. Like I could have done that at the temple. I could have done that somewhere else. So, Just again, connecting you with some of the emotion of the expectation of the people and how Jesus didn't come to meet our expectations, he came to meet our ultimate needs. And that we can miss that. We can miss that if we don't connect ourselves to the humanity of this moment. Now these teachers and these religious leaders that we read about, that was another part that is hard to understand. Because when I read about the Pharisees, I don't know about you guys, but I pass over and I often think just like I'm, I'm scoffing in my head at them. like. How do they not get it? What's their problem? These guys are so dense. Why don't they see what Jesus is doing? Why don't they understand his teaching? Why don't they know it's about the heart, not about the mental ascent and what's in the mind? Anybody resonating with this? That when you read about the Pharisees, you kind of scoff at them with this prideful arrogance of how could they see this to be that way? I want to urge you. I want to urge you. Don't be so quick to write off these Pharisees. Don't be so quick to quickly pass over the lessons you see them needing to learn. Because I would bet that those are the very lessons that God wants you to learn from them. We are so quick to say, what's the the audacity of these guys? But in reality, that is actually the category that we belong in at any given moment. Could you imagine if Jesus came back and he was breaking like the norms of what we thought religion and church and society were supposed to be and he came back, what would you be thinking about how he was operating? You might have some judgment to throw out there. You might be a little confused. You might scoff at the way that he was doing things and the cultural norms and boundaries that he was breaking down. So I urge you, when you read about the Pharisees, and this is a whole other sermon, so you're just getting a paragraph today, but don't pass over it and dispel it, because oftentimes that is actually the category that we belong in and need to receive some teaching from. Amen? Amen. Don't pass over it. God may want to reveal something to you about your religious heart through the things that you point out about the Pharisees. <clears throat> so what else do we need to learn about here? Mark writes what these guys were thinking. Did you, did you catch that the first time through? It wasn't like, oh, these Pharisees, they're saying all this stuff and they're coming at them. No, they were sitting there and it didn't say they had proclaimed anything yet. But he says that they were thinking this and Jesus addressed their thoughts. Jesus addressed these guys' thoughts. This is another place where he proves his authority and his power to these religious leaders who at this point in time, when it came to anything of the Bible, spirituality, any of that, like these guys were the authority. And he comes in and he literally like reads their minds basically and says, hey, why are you thinking this? Why are you thinking this? And he challenges their paradigm. This is another establishment of his power and his authority And then he poses the question, What's easier to forgive their sins, or to heal him, and say, "Get up, take your mat and walk." Jesus says, He wants them to know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, the Son of Man." Now I often miss the significance of how Jesus refers to himself here. Because we see him referred to in so many different ways, right? Like, if you read through just the Gospels alone, but then you go into some Isaiah and some of the prophets in different places, there are so many ways that, like, in names that Jesus is referred to as. So why the Son of Man? Why the Son of Man? This is actually the most common way that Jesus just, like, refers to himself in the Gospels. Like, this is the most common self-designation he gives himself as, I'm the Son of Man. Now, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew designation is Ben-Adam, and Adam is just the word for man. You know, go back to, we say Adam because we like to give the guy a name in Genesis, but it's actually the first man, Adam, um, that in the Hebrew, and it means human being. Yet Jesus uses this term not just to identify the humanity that he is exemplifying, but there's another significance to this title. And if you look at the book of Daniel, it speaks of a son of a son like or sorry let me reread that it speaks of a guy like the son of man I can't read this morning that is an exalted messianic figure who comes with the clouds of heaven and receives authority glory and sovereign power from God setting up an eternal kingdom that will never be destroyed does that sound familiar this is Daniel This isn't the book of Mark, but it's a lot of what chapter one we already covered about who Jesus is, who Jesus is declaring he is, who John the Baptist says that Jesus is going to be. This son of man has Old Testament context. And so many times we forget that as Jesus is referencing these things, this is stuff that these these Jewish folks would have been able to recall. When he says son of man, they're not just going to say, oh, that's bizarre, son of man, you're not my son. Your son of mankind. Like, they're not going to think about it like we would. They can say, oh, that was in Daniel, or that was in this book that we've known about for our entire lives, and it's going to be like a hyperlink on a webpage directing them back to this source, and it's going to have context and connotation associated with it. Jesus continues to connect his life and ministry to the promises and the prophecies these people and leaders would have not only known about, but what they would have been looking forward to, anticipating and craving the fulfillment of for the entirety of their lives. He continues to connect himself to those things. And this is undoubtedly challenging the status quo and the expectations of all who would interact with Jesus or hear his work or see his work or hear his words. This would have been challenging their status quo, that he's coming in and making these bold statements. Theologians and scholars Walter Wessel and Mark Strauss and their expositors' Bible commentary write it like this. They say, historically, Jesus likely used this title, Son of Man, because it expressed his identity without the political and military connotations that titles such as Christ and Son of David carried in first century Judaism. He could use it to define his messiahship on his own terms. And throughout Mark's narrative, Jesus uses this title to demonstrate his messianic authority, to affirm his mission of service and suffering, and to predict his return in glory to save and judge. To save and judge. So that's how the scholars, the theologians, the really smart guys that I read about to help me write sermons would refer to it. That's what they would say. And then it wraps up by him telling the paralytic to get up, take his mat, and go home. And he did so. And one of the, like, my most fun parts to imagine is just like, he walks out and says, in full view of all the people. And they praise God, giving him glory, because they'd never seen anything like this before. Imagine the first time you saw the hand of God move in your life, and what that feeling was like, oh my gosh, praise God, I, I, what just happened? I've never seen anything like that before. Like it was that moment, but on a, like a community scale. This entire community would have been seeing that. You all right, Doc? I didn't think it was that good of a point yet, but... <laughs> so... <laughs> I love having kids in service. Um, so that's a little bit of, of just the context. And again, there's so much there, and it can seem disjointed to go through because I believe the things that we don't necessarily pick up on are or, or just kind of highlight real. Um, but the real meat of this is there's two major points that I believe God wants to speak, not just to us as a community, but to each one of our hearts individually this morning. And that is that forgiveness, this first point, forgiveness is a bigger deal than healing. Forgiveness is a bigger deal than healing. Like, these friends saw that this guy needed healed. It was evident he couldn't walk on his own. Like, he needed the hand of God to do something in his life, to intervene. And it manifested itself in this, this physical disablement. Like, he wasn't able to walk. And so they bring him to the feet of Jesus. Jesus. And the audacity of this Jesus guy, right? He says, "Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven." Does he still still heal them? Absolutely, he still heals the guy. He says, get up, walk. And it was a testimony to who he was and his power and authority. But remember, we talked about the last couple of weeks. The point of Jesus coming here was not his miracles. The miracles was a method to point to his kingdom, the coming of his kingdom, the main reason he is here on earth. And so he says, hey, first things first, first things first, your sins are forgiven. Now, some people that have broken down this passage in the Bible, some of those smart guys I referred to earlier, they get in this debate as to, like, did Jesus deal with that first because the Pharisees were there and he just really wanted to give them a gut punch? He wanted to, like, put them in their place. And and, and the rest of the way Mark wrote his gospel, that's not shown to be the case. It's just something fun to think about when, you know, you're bored and you're contemplating these things. But the reality is Jesus was dealing with what mattered first. He dealt with the most important thing first because if he healed this man and just sent him off and said, be healed, go, like that's going to give him some temporal relief, right? Like his lifestyle, like the life he's experiencing there is likely going to be better for now. But at the end of his life, there is still an eternal thing inside of him in his soul that needed reconciled. And Jesus comes to deal with that first. And if we don't read all of this passage and really the entirety of the Gospels with the paradigm that forgiveness is more important than healing, we can miss the point. Does Jesus heal? Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely, without a doubt, he does. We read about it time and time again. I've seen it in my own life. The Holy Spirit does a miraculous work, and people are physically healed. He still, still does it. But that's not the main thing. It is just a thing to point to the kingdom of God. It's coming. It's working here on earth in that good news that Jesus came to preach. We can't get mixed up the hierarchy of what is important to him in this story. Did he heal the guy? Absolutely. Was that the main thing? No. And he shows that by addressing his need for forgiveness right off the bat. The significance of this story is not to be understood primarily in the terms of the compassion that moves Jesus to heal this man's paralyzed body. But the emphasis on the forgiveness of sins, which is the root cause of all sickness and disease... In this act of forgiveness, Jesus was declaring the presence of God's kingdom here on earth. There's a new king in town. There's a new kingdom. There's a new orientation of how things work. And he was ushering that in and giving evidence to that in this moment. The other thing that is given just about a sentence in this, one verse, one sentence that I think is something that God really wants to speak to us this morning is this concept of there being strength in numbers. Now you've heard that that phrase in, in all kinds of facets of your life. Strength in numbers, yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, I, I've played sports, it's always better to have some teammates by my side or whatever else. But there's something in strength in numbers, in community, in a group of people coming together that can accomplish things and persevere through things that an individual cannot on their own. Cannot on their own. Now, there's just the like actual physical strength of one person versus four people or one person versus a community, and that's kind of a, well, yeah, obviously, there's a collective physical strength, but special things happen when a group of people come together. There's a morale boost. There's a camaraderie that happens amongst a group of people functioning on purpose. There's a faithfulness and a fortitude, which fortitude means courage in pain or adversity, There's faithfulness and fortitude that comes along with a group of people coming together. Now, we can assume that these guys that brought the paralytic to Jesus were from a different town. How far away? I don't know. But word was out that Jesus was back, and they were late to the party. It was already full. So the odds are they were from some surrounding village, and they'd been traveling all day carrying this guy to get him to the feet of Jesus. Now speaking for me personally, if I'm sitting here in North Eugene and I hear that this guy Scott that lives in Coburg has this Jesus guy, this miracle worker, chilling on his front porch and stuff's like going down, right? Like he's healing people, he's preaching this good news, he's got this new authority, and I'm like, oh, Coburg. Well, that's not that far, but you know, I have this friend who's paralyzed, and if it's just me, and I think about trying to get him to Jesus, and I just sold my donkey last week, so I know I'm going to have to carry him there. That was my only means. Like, that's, that's still quite a ways. Is it a long ways? No, but me carrying somebody, that, that's a little, bit, a little ways off. And if I'm by myself, my thought processes, knowing myself and knowing humanity a bit, are going to go something like this. Oh, yeah, I could make that happen. Absolutely. I mean, how far is it really? And then I'm going to hear this voice that's going to say, you know what? What if he's not really healing people anyway? That's the devil. And then you're going to hear this voice that says, gosh, I... I just don't know, you know, if, if it's really worth it. I don't know if you can, if you can do it. I don't know. Th- and all these doubts are going to start popping into your head. And when you're by yourself, your intentions get the best of you, and this action that God's calling to you never leaves your queue because you're not with other people helping you to faithfully walk something out. And if it were me and it was just like, oh, yeah, I got this paralyzed friend. There's a miracle worker over there. I got to, like, throw him on my back and get him there. I'm going to have every excuse in the book within five minutes to not make that happen. Whether it's my own selfishness, pride, laziness, or it's just the enemy spewing lies into my ear, that is likely not going to happen. Can anybody in the room resonate? Okay, so I'm not the only one. That's good. But if I'm in my backyard having lunch with some of my close friends, and one of my friends sitting there with us happens to be paralyzed, he can't walk. And I know this guy's been dealing with this his whole life. An accident happened in childhood, and he hasn't had the use of his legs, and it has significantly affected his way of life. It's even affected how he sees himself and his ability to, like, engage in community. And I know that about this friend, and we're sitting there. And then all of a sudden, someone runs into my backyard, busts through the gate, and says, hey, over in Coburg, there's this guy, Scott, and he's got this guest. His name's Jesus, and he's healing people. He's working miracles, and he's preaching this good news of the kingdom of God coming with a new power and authority like no one's ever seen. You know what's going to happen then? I'm going to look around. I'm going to be like, I think we can do this. And I'm gonna, someone's going to have the audacity to say, hey, let, let's, get our, let's get our boy out there. Let's do it. And then me, because I'm the lazy one from the last story, I'm going to say, I don't know. What if this guy's not for real and this is just rumors? And then Matt's going to stand up and say, hold up, Chris, wait a second. Like, I experienced this guy two days ago. You wouldn't believe what he did. I was right there. I witnessed it. This guy's for real. And I'm going to say, man, that's great and all, but that's a long ways away. Again, I told you guys, I just sold my donkey last week. Like, we're going to have to carry him all the way there. And then Rod's going to stand up and say, oh, no, we got this together, Chris. We can carry him there. We can get him there. Let's do this. And there's something that happens in these moments where there's a collective faith and fortitude amongst a group of people where things can happen that will never happen on your own. That will never happen on your own. And we read through it, and we're like, oh, cool, four dudes lowered this guy through a hole in the roof. But there's so much more to it that God wants to speak to you about who you engage with and how you engage the community around you. There's something to being in a group, strength in numbers, other people walking this stuff out with you. Because when the enemy's spitting in lies on a group of you, there's going to be somebody that's got the fortitude to stand up and call out the lies and remind you of truth and keep you marching towards what God has for you. But when you're alone, like I said, sometimes stuff never just gets out of that mental queue because your intentions get the best of you and you just stay paralyzed in analysis and you never actually activate the things God's put on your heart. But that doesn't happen with strength in numbers. When you are together, when you are in community... And you are in community. Now, we got to remember that the miracles are great and all. And they definitely point to the power and to the goodness of the kingdom of God. But ultimately, God came to heal the heart, to heal the inner person, to bring forgiveness, to heal the soul. That's what matters to Jesus. And this happens with the supernatural forgiveness that only comes through an encounter with him. So when we talk about making room for forgiveness, there's a literal physical aspect to that, yes. But there's also a heart posture and a relational presence that's involved. There's a relational presence involved in making room for a supernatural forgiveness of God to come in to the life of you into the lives of others. I mean, think about it in the context of this story. Making room for forgiveness for these men for their paralyzed friend literally meant tearing apart somebody's roof. Like, I don't know about you guys, but when people start tearing into my roof, they're going to have a little encounter, right? Like, just out of my default fleshly reaction, it's like, okay, it's on, right? Like, they, they had the audacity to break down these barriers, to tear into these people's roofs, to get this man to the feet of Jesus. They did whatever it took to make sure that he was at the feet of the only one who could heal him, who could help him, who could change his life forever, this story of Jesus healing the paralytic was actually the first story from the Bible that ever penetrated my heart. And for the first time, I got a glimpse of who Jesus was and who we were to him. I was 15 years old. I was at a youth camp, and the story got shared, and it just did something in me. In the same way that it moved in me when I was 15, it still moves inside of me and ministers to my soul and speaks to my identity, my value, my worth, and my calling today. Now I know and I've accepted for some time now that God has called me to be one of those men who will go to the distance for somebody. That's just how he's wired me to be, how he's called me to be, to put in the hard work, to frustrate some people along the way to tear up some roofs and cut in lines so that my friends can encounter Jesus along the way because I know that he wants them in the family. That's something that I know that has, has been something that's a part of my life and my calling. I've shed tears, I've hit things, I've yelled, I've prayed, I've been filled with joy and I've been filled with frustration, I've been loved and I've been betrayed by others, I've made friends and I've lost friends, all because I know that God has called me to break down barriers so his kids could be in his presence, so that his kids could be in his presence, so his sons and daughters could encounter his love, his compassion, and his power. And that calling to engage this world with that mindset is not just my calling. It's a calling to every single follower of Jesus. It's not just my calling and my mission. Oh, that's great for you, pastor. That's why you're up there preaching. No, that's not true. It's all of our callings to engage people with that kind of fervor and tenacity that at any cost we will do whatever it takes to get them to the feet of the only one who can heal them. Because what happens is when we have insecurity about our calling, about who we are in Jesus and about the value that others have in us, we try to have influence in people's lives and we try to gather them and get them to follow us because it makes us feel good. And then there's this point in time where it's like, okay... I have trust with this person, but they really need Jesus. And we look, and the crowd is all there, and we can't see how we can get to the house, and we we can't find the ladder or the stairs, and we're like, I don't want to ruin somebody's roof trying to get them to Jesus, and we just stop right there. But God is calling us to break down through the barriers and say whatever it takes to get someone to the feet of their Savior to get them to the feet of the one who created them and the only one who can heal them from the inside out because he knows exactly how he designed each and every one of you and every one of us. We stop short so many times and God is calling us to push through those boundaries, to do whatever it takes to see people come to Jesus, to his feet and get ultimate forgiveness and healing. And when you accept that this calling and this mission is for you, it's going to change some things about the way you live. Some of you have experienced this already. Some of you have been with us since, you know, within the first year of this church plant. When you commit to a calling and a mission, like it changes some things. There's some sacrifices in there. You may find yourselves actually calling somebody to check up on them. You know, like the the kind where you push the buttons and you hit the green button that rings and then you have to interchange with voices, not just the emoji kind of communication. Like you may find yourselves using that phone call function and talking to someone, even though that's not how you like to talk to people because they haven't answered your texts. And you know that God has them on your heart and you're going to pursue them even when it's awkward and it doesn't feel comfortable. You're going to step outside of what you're comfortable with. Sometimes you're going to have to have extremely awkward and hard conversations with people when you live life this way. Not because it's what you choose. I don't know a single person in here, maybe one, maybe two. I'll say two so I don't have to say names. I don't know many people in this room who would love to have hard, awkward conversations. I don't know how many people would would choose to do that. But because it's a necessary step in leading someone to Jesus and literally carrying them to the feet of Jesus, that's going to be something you're going to have to do when you say, yeah, I'll accept that that's my calling and my mission. When you accept this, you're going to mourn and grieve with others. You will have things said to you that you don't think are true, but you take it anyway. Because in a moment, leading someone to Jesus is more important than leading them to understand you. It's not about how they think about you, how they feel about you. If they understand everything you say, it's about you putting that aside to lead them to Jesus. Now, God has led some people, or led you to some people. Right now, if you were to take an audit of the people in your life, God has led you to some people, and he's led some people to you for the purpose of you leading them to him. I'll say that one more time, because it's a lot of leads and leads, It's like fishing God has led you to some people and led some people to you for the purpose of you leading them to him the goal is never for people to be attracted to you and what you have to say and the wisdom you can give them or how you make them feel or the compassion that you extend to them should you have all those things yes because it gives you credibility when you point to your source amen We should be showing those things with all the brokenness happening all around us. You bet as followers of Jesus, we better be extending compassion, but not just so that they say, gosh, that Matt guy, he's quite compassionate. I think I like him, but maybe so they say, man, amidst all the difficult stuff going on right now, you're extending compassion. How do you do it? And Matt says, hey, I got a source that's like none other, the one who actually created each of us, and he empowers me to love and care for others in that way. And giving the glory to God. We do whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. It's not a solo project where things just get caught up in your, your own cue of what needs done in your life. This is meant to be done together. We make room for forgiveness in other people's lives by intentionally engaging in the process with them and doing whatever it takes to bring them to the one who can heal them can save them. <clears throat> when you are in the kingdom business of seeing people brought back into family and faith with Jesus, <clears throat> you look at time and money and convenience and all those things differently. Because if you just think about the people that God's led to you and you, and He has led you to, and you're like, man, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of time. I'm going to have to give up some things I like. That's going to cost me some money. That's going to cost me... like. You look at it and you're like, ah, that can be a barrier to entry. But when you're doing kingdom work, God changes your heart and your mindset about those things. And they change. And you realize that it is so worth the sacrifice. For every person that repents, believes, puts their faith in Jesus, gets water baptized, gets filled with the Holy Spirit. Each person that engages in that process, it is so worth the sacrifice. And I pray that each one of us gets to experience what it's like to be a part of somebody's journey in coming to the feet of their creator. Receiving forgiveness and healing and hope in eternity. So, my prayer for us is that as a family, we would not forget or disconnect the opportunity and mission that God gives us to actively engage in the process of bringing redemption and reconciliation to his creation through the forgiveness of sins. That we wouldn't forget about it and we wouldn't allow ourselves to disconnect our obligation, our opportunity, our part, our mission and purpose in those things. Would we accept that that's how we're supposed to live and see what God might do as we as a community join together in that? Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the ways in which you are moving and working in this community, and I thank you for the ways in which you are gonna to continue to. Would you help each of us to be able to identify who you have led to us and who you have led us to? God, empower us, give us wisdom, and give us faithfulness and fortitude to lead them to you. God, we love you, and we thank you for this family. We thank you for this mission. We thank you for this time you've given us together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we engage in bringing people to Jesus, we must seek to address their greatest need, which is their forgiveness. Their greatest need isn't more friends. It's not more money. It's not a better job. It's forgiveness. And we have access to lead them to the only one who can provide that. Amen. So have a great week. We'll see you guys next week. And thank you for being with us.